The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Novel Targets for Management of Generalized Pustular Psoriasis, Utilizing a Team-Based Approach from Diagnosis to Treatment of Flares. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash NJA860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Welcome to Novel Targets for Management of Generalized Pustular Psoriasis, Utilizing a Team-Based Approach from Diagnosis to Treatment of Flares. I'm Bonnie Aluski, the James Elder Professor and Chair of Dermatology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. And my colleague is Dr. Mark Lebwall. Hi, everyone. I'm Mark Lebwall. I'm Dean for Clinical Therapeutics at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and Chairman Emeritus of the Department of Dermatology. So, pustular psoriasis is part of a heterogeneous group of severe inflammatory skin conditions. It is characterized by widespread sterile pustules with pain, scaling, erythema, dryness, itch, burning. Patients don't feel well. They uh, feel uh, they have joint pain. They have headache, fever. They may also have heart failure, high output cardiac failure, uh, and tachycardia. There are several phenotypic subtypes. First is GPP. The, uh, under GPP, there are two types, the acute or the von Zumbusch type. And then there's one that's more benign called the generalized annular pustular psoriasis that we'll mention in a little bit. And then there's two localized types. One is acrodermatitis continua of halipo, uh, where uh, generally lesions occur on the distal fingers, tips, and toes. Uh, with nail involvement, it may affect one or multiple nails. And then palmar plantar pustulosis occurs on the palms and soles, as implied by the name, and may be on both palms, both soles, or just on some of them. Uh, Bonnie, let me uh, just make a comment. The the uh, categorization of them into the two localized types and the two generalized types is very important because with the approval now of new medications, that target the IL-36 receptor, it is very clear that the generalized types behave similarly and have the same comorbidities, impact on quality of life, um, and are very similar one to the other. And same with the two localized types. You know, And I'm not sure if it is because of the acral location of these, uh, acrodermatitis continuopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopalopal
but it's rare in children. Do you want to comment on that, Mark? Yes, I, and I will say that uh, the numbers we're looking at here are the prevalence among psoriasis patients at best, including both together, because generalized pustular psoriasis is very rare, and uh, and in fact, uh, it is probably on the or one order of magnitude lower in Caucasian patients and in African-American patients or African patients than it is in Asian patients. It's much more common in Asian patients. But even in Asian patients, generalized pustular psoriasis is far from a common condition. It's a rare condition. Uh, palmoplantar pustulosis, palmoplantar pustular psoriasis are uh, substantially more common. They're also uncommon in the general population, but among uh, psoriasis patients, they are more common than generalized pustular psoriasis. I think most of us see the palmar plantar pustulosis every month, maybe even every week. It's not that rare. It's fairly common, unlike GPP, which is very uncommon. And there are differences clinically and uh, immunologically between GPP and plaque psoriasis. Uh, GPP can occur in patients with or without plaque psoriasis. Uh, plaque psoriasis is driven by the IL-23 pathway. GPP is driven by the IL-36 pathway. And the biopsies between the two are different. We know that GPP is associated with mutations in the IL-36 receptor blocker mutation. Did you want to comment on this too, Mark? Uh, I, you know, the slide is perfect. I mean, you know, it is very easy to distinguish pustular psoriasis from plaque psoriasis. Um, there are certainly patients who have various forms of psoriasis, erythrodermic, even plaque psoriasis. You can see an occasional pustule, but predominantly there are sharply demarcated erythematous scaling plaques. In pustular psoriasis, there may be plaque psoriasis as well, but it is overwhelmingly pustules. It's red inflamed skin covered by pustules. Uh, that's the distinguishing feature. So what is the etiology of GPP? Well, there's genetic predisposition. There's loss of function mutations in the IL-36 receptor antagonist gene. It's more prevalent in patients with GPP without plaque psoriasis. But patients with plaque psoriasis can have pustular psoriasis also. They may, may or may not have uh, the loss of function mutation in the IL-36 receptor antagonist. There's also an increased frequency of the HLA-B27 allele and other gain-of-function mutations. There are environmental influences as well as drugs that also can influence um, and precipitate GPP. Infections might, stress, uh, trauma to the skin, including sunburn, smoking, and pregnancy. In fact, GPP in pregnancy is is not is very serious and life-threatening for not only the mother, but for the fetus. And we know that there are a variety of drugs that can trigger GPP, the most common of which is the sudden withdrawal of systemic uh, steroids. But other drugs can also do this, hydroxychloroquine and beta blockers, lithium, iodine, antibiotics. Phototherapy has been reported, and certain vaccinations, including the flu vaccination. Okay, so how do we diagnose GPP? Basically, it's a clinical diagnosis. A patient is generally toxic. They're, uh, they have a fever. They uh, be chills. They may complain of pain. They probably do. They feel quite sick. They may have joint pain. Uh, they may present to the ED. They come in red with pustules. 
It's a clinical diagnosis. Yes, you can do a biopsy, but the biopsy is not necessary for the diagnosis. You need to treat before you get the biopsy back. The biopsy is fairly specific, but not necessarily pathognomonic. You see neutrophilic subcorneal pustules um, characterized by cajoy spongiform pustules. Um, and there's an intense neutrophilic epidermal and dermal infil infiltration forming pustules with subcorneal localization. Uh, and intradermal pustules. So the key thing is there are a lot of pustules on the biopsy. Yes, you can do genetic screening, but that's not needed. And you should probably get blood work. A CBC, SED rate, a CRP would be reasonable and the usual blood chemistries that you would do. Um, many times you might want to culture the pustule to be sure there's no infection. But if you feel the patient has GPP, you should treat when you feel that rather than wait for the diagnosis to come back. So the bottom line is GPP should be suspected in patients with acute onset erythema pustulosis, and if more more suspected, if they also have a history of psoriasis, or they put were put on one of the drugs that we just spoke about, or had one of the other stressors we just spoke about. Yeah, I, I will say that um, we really have to come down firmly here on what you said, which is that you don't have to have a biopsy to make the diagnosis. The danger here is that a medical director at an insurance company will say, oh, I want a biopsy or, oh, I want a genetic test. This is a life-threatening condition much of the time. Not all the time, but much of the time. And when it is life-threatening, you can't dilly-dally waiting for a biopsy and waiting for a genetic test, uh, which, by the way, the genetic test is not standardly available. Uh, so that, um, so I, I think that it is a mistake for any guideline to say that you need a, a biopsy, you do not need a biopsy. It is a clinical diagnosis 99% of the time. And um, and I will say the one lookalike, which I think we're going to speak about, AGEP, is easy to exclude. Uh, so I think, you know, if you see a lot of pustules in a sick patient, the thing you should do is, is treat, treat quickly. Okay, so how do we assess disease severity in GPP? Well, patients are sick. Um, and keep in mind that this disease is a heterogeneous disease and has a variable clinical course. Uh, patients may have it once or they may have recurrent flares with periods of clear skin or just plaque psoriasis in between their flares. So the spectrum of disease varies between patients. When you have a patient in your office, probably what you want to do is a BSA of the pustular lesions. There are other things that can be done, but probably not in your you can do a, uh, a GP posi, which is like a posi, but with assessing the pustules. And you can do a physician global assessment for the GPP, but that's not mandatory. I think the BSA is the most uh, practical severity assessment. Mark, how do you feel about that? I agree completely. I, I think, so first of all, the GPP global assessment is not a standard tool, um, but you can eyeball a patient, say, you know, they're mild, moderate, severe, or, uh, and give that a number. And then that times the BSA gives you a very accurate picture of what you have. So I think the BSA is the easiest. That's what all of us do. Um, uh, then the, uh, the generalized special stress area and severity index, again, you can get an idea of how much BSA the patient has and assign a number to that. But basically, BSA is the easiest one to do. All of our colleagues know how to do that. And that's what we should go with in terms of measuring improve, improvement. 
okay, so now how do we differentiate GPP from other skin conditions? Well, multiple disorders, as we already mentioned, have pustules. So remember, GPP has big pustules. The patients are probably toxic. They're sick. They may be diffusely red. Um, uh, EGEP, as Mark already me mentioned, is the most likely uh, differential uh, that you might consider. People generally are not as sick, and the pustules are smaller. I call them pustular puddles, not legs, because they're teeny, monomorphous little pustules that are present, and the biopsy will be a little different. You can have a dermatitis with secondary infection. I do not think you will mistake that for GPP, unless a patient also has plaque psoriasis, and maybe they come in with an infection on a uh, on a eczematous plaque from poison ivy or something. Then we mentioned some corneal pustular dermatosis, which uh, an IgA pemphigus kind of lumped together. Uh, they can look alike. Uh, subcorneal pustular dermatosis occurs in middle-aged women, affects the trunk. Um, it is differentiated from IgA pemphigus on, uh, on the biopsy and immune stains, um, but they're similar in appearance and there's a lot of overlap. I'll talk briefly about the pathophysiology of uh, GPP compared to plaque psoriasis. And these are two where the differences are enormous. Um, so first of all, going back decades when we first had TNF blockers, we knew TNF played a role. But as time went on, it became very clear that TNF played a role by impacting IL-17 and IL-23. And it is that IL-17, IL-23 axis that is responsible for the development of plaque psoriasis. It, while IL-36 is um, elevated in plaque psoriasis, it is clearly the key driver of generalized pustular psoriasis. And that was really, really became uh, incontestable when a group of patients were discovered with, in, with the deficiency of the IL-36 receptor antagonist. So it was really genetics that brought us the identification of the IL-36 receptor as a target. And of course, shortly thereafter, uh, antibodies to the receptor were targeted to, uh, which, which targeted the receptor were clearly shown to dramatically impact generalized pustular psoriasis. Um, there is a, a, a very fine balance going on in all of us between um, the IL-36 receptor, which is, plays an important role in bringing pustules into the skin when you need it, and the antagonist, which, which prevents that um, IL-36 role from going haywire. So there's a fine balance that keeps most patients and people without pustules on their skin. When you lose that antagonist, that's when generalized pustule psoriasis occurs. Uh, so uh, this diagram shows very nicely the uh, uh, interaction that I just discussed between uh, agonists to the IL-36 receptor bringing in uh, uh, pustules when, in, when required to do things like battle infection uh, and, and then modulation of that by the IL-36 receptor antagonist. Uh, and under normal condition, they interact beautifully to keep us from developing pustular psoriasis. Uh, and obviously, when you have an infection and an inflammatory condition that demands the infiltration of pustules, the IL-36 um, 
uh, cytokine and receptor interaction occurs, bringing pus where it is needed. But when that, when you lose that antagonist, it can take over and come out with pus everywhere. Uh, and that's shown beautifully here. I will, you know, downplay a little bit the uh, IL-1 receptor accessory protein that is shown here because uh, drugs that have impact that are not approved for pustular psoriasis and really were only necessary until we actually had an IL-36 receptor, an IL-36 receptor antibody. Now that we have that, you know, we, we probably will no longer be using uh, drugs like Anakinra because uh, they've not been demonstrated to be demonstrated to be as effective. So as you might guess, GPP has a significant negative impact on quality of life, probably more than plaque psoriasis. Uh, patients have trouble walking, caring for themselves, usual activities. Pain is horrible. They have, um, you can see that the pain is significantly more of a problem in pustular psoriasis than plaque psoriasis. Patients tell me they feel like their skin is being ripped off or pulled off. Uh, pain is not usually as much of a problem in plaque psoriasis, but pustulars can be horrible. Uh, although patients with both plaque and pustular can be depressed and anxious, pustular can be worse. And I think when you talk to some patients, some of their anxiety is they laid in a hospital bed with people not knowing what they had till they were seen by a dermatologist. So it's the uh, the fact that they have a disease that may kill them that can't be diagnosed. So it's really important that we as dermatologists take control and make the diagnosis of this disease to help our patients. So patients have a burning pain, itching, they're tired. It affects all aspects of their life from daily life. And as we mentioned, they're anxious and depressed. We also know that GPP has a high burden of extracutaneous and systemic comorbidity. So they may have psychiatric disorders. And think about that when you care for these patients, they may need mental health uh, attention. It's more common to have thyroid and parathyroid disease. Metabolic syndrome is common in both psoriasis and plaque psoriasis. So is arthritis, celiac disease, the high output cardiac failure. And interestingly, hypocalcemia can occur in GPP due to loss of calcium from the skin. What are the complications and mortality of GPP? Well, I guess we have to keep in mind that death is a complication, often due to septic shock or cardiac failure. Mortality is 3 to 25%. So sepsis or septic shock is the most common cause of death during a GPP flare, which is why we need to make a rapid diagnosis, start treatment. We do not wait for a biopsy. You have to go on your clinical, um, your clinical signs, your clinical symptoms, and the patient history. They may have complications, infection, superinfection. Uh, they may be septic. Uh, they may have other problems with liver, renal, heart disease. They may have arthritis. Um, and they're probably quite sick, and you may meet the patient in the hospital or uh, in the emergency department, or you may see them after they've been discharged. Most patients will need to be hospitalized, uh, often frequently for every time they have a flare. So holistic management of GPP. So let's begin in the middle. Has treatment that you've given achieved clearance of the pustules and alleviated pain and symptoms? If yes, then we need to monitor the patient uh, periodically to be sure they don't have a recurrence. Remind them not to take any drug that might incite a new flare. No steroids, no hydroxychloroquine, no beta blockers, iodine, um, 
and what we discussed already um, and try to keep them um, stress-free. They may need to have um, mental health care and the, uh, losing weight might be helpful if that's an issue and they may need to see a dietitian. If it did not achieve a clearance, then you have to monitor the patient periodically. They may need to um, uh, be continued on medication um, periodically to keep a flare from coming and um, uh, continue to have the patient seen by an internist, uh, a primary care doctor that understands the disease. And for a pregnant women, they need to have close follow-up with their OB to also protect the health of the baby. Mark, do you want to comment on this? Yeah, I think, you know, these are all very good suggestions. There are some common sense, practical things that we do. Um, even baths, wet to dry dressings. Uh, if the uh, hospital you're in has it, uh, you can put them in something like a whirlpool to, to basically debride the pus that's on the skin uh, to clean them up. Um, but, uh, you know, fortunately nowadays we have a, a wonderful treatment that works in hours uh, to dry up those pustules. So the patients are a lot better off than they used to be. It is actually much easier to treat the patients now that we do have a targeted therapy that uh, hits the IL-36 receptor. So what are our treatment options? Well, we have a variety of options. Uh, topical treatments may help. Uh, we've done that for years before we've had more targeted treatment. Uh, oral treatments are available. Uh, cyclosporin is uh, effective, may not be tolerated by all, and has its own uh, issues, side effects. Um, antibiotics, if indicated. Let's pull out systemic steroids, and maybe we could talk about that, Mark, because I don't use systemic steroids in my patients with GPP. Yeah, I think that study by Ryan and Baker it, between 1969 and 71, they have two publications on it. That really put the nail in the coffin for systemic steroids. Um, I would not use systemic steroids, and I avoid them in any psoriasis patient if I can. Uh, and you can't always, but if I can, I avoid them. And the reason is that um, that is the leading cause in every series. Uh, it's the leading cause of triggering pustular psoriasis. Um, and it is certainly the case that patients uh, who have pustular psoriasis respond overnight. And, you know, the tendency to use it because they respond so quickly is a pressure on us that we have to avoid. Because those patients, if you put them on systemic steroids, you're increasing their chance of dying. And, uh, and I really would avoid that at all costs. So biologic treatments 20 years ago, I was using TNF blockers. And then when the IL-17 blockers came out, I used the IL-17 blockers, um, maybe with or without one of the or, or cyclosporin or acetretin. But now we have IL-36 blocker, a spazolimab, which is the only GPP-specific treatment that is currently FDA-approved in the U.S. Um, and it was approved last year in 22. Uh, do you want to comment on that, Mark? I do. You know, so when you look at this list of treatments, some, none of them are approved in the U.S., in Japan, several of them are approved. And uh, Bonnie said already that in Asian patients, the prevalence of GPP is higher. Um, and that's why probably Japan has been at the cutting edge of this. Uh, and until we had an IL-36 receptor blocker, um, we pretty much were stuck with the uh, treatment on we have for psoriasis. 
And I too used either cyclosporin with acetretin or IL-17 blockers with acetretin. Uh, and I used to use TNF blockers. When you look at the endpoints in the trials that led to their approval for uh, psoriasis, for generalized special psoriasis in Japan, they're small studies. And you understand that because it's not a common condition. So I have no qualms with that. But they used PASI scores. You know, when you have pustular psoriasis, one of the biggest components of the score is induration. There is no induration. They, these are flat lesions that have pustules, and there's no pustular component to the score. So the scores were not good. In addition, it was so hard to find good treatments for GPP that many of the trials used any improvement at all as a measure of success. So if you went from 51% body surface area to 50%, that was called the treatment success in those trials. And, and it was not because the people doing the trials were foolish. It was because we simply didn't have good drugs. Now we have a good drug. And those old uh, definitions of treatment success really should be discarded. Uh, we should be looking for zero pustules as a target. So cyclosporin, let's bring up again, is effective in GPP, and I don't. I th I'd encourage you to be, to use it in your patients if if needed. I generally start at two and a half to three milligrams per kilogram and work up to five milligrams. Understand the side effects; you can't keep it, give it for long periods of time, uh, but it may bridge uh, treatment, uh, and it can be quite effective. But it's not for all patients. Do you still use cyclosporin, Mark? I almost never do anymore. You know, we haven't had an occasion to use it uh, since Basolomab was out because uh, the drug works so well. So we haven't had uh, we haven't had an enormous number of patients, but actually we have had some, and Basolomab worked right away. Okay, let's now watch animation that illustrates this mechanism of action for Basolomab before we look at clinical trial results. Generalized pustular psoriasis is a rare, life-threatening form of psoriasis characterized by episodes of sterile neutrophilic pustules, inflammation, and often systemic involvement. GPP pathogenesis is driven by dysregulation of the IL-36 pathway. The IL-36 pathway is normally regulated by the competitive interplay between IL-36 receptor agonists, IL-36-alpha, beta, and gamma, and the IL-36 receptor antagonist. When IL-36 agonists bind to the IL-36 receptor on keratinocyte surfaces, this binding leads to dimerization of the IL-36 receptor in the IL-1 receptor accessory protein, allowing activation of downstream transcription factors such as NF-kappa-B and MAP kinase. These transcription factors promote expression of chemokines and pro-inflammatory cytokines, which recruit and activate additional immune cells, including monocytes, T-cells, dendritic cells, and neutrophils. Dendritic cell activation stimulates release of pro-inflammatory cytokines TNF-alpha and IL-23, which stimulate Th17 cell differentiation. Th17 cells secrete IL-17, which further increases IL-36 levels. Neutrophil accumulation in the epidermis forms the characteristic pustules of GPP. Neutrophil-derived proteases also activate additional IL-36 agonists, amplifying IL-36 pathway activation. When the IL-36 receptor antagonist binds to the IL-36 receptor, dimerization with the accessory protein is sterically hindered. 
any imbalance between IL-36 agonists and the IL-36 antagonists results in dysregulation of the IL-36 pathway and uncontrolled induction of the IL-36 pathway indicated in GPP pathogenesis. Spesolumab is a humanized monoclonal antibody that inhibits IL-36 signaling by binding to the IL-36 receptor. Spesolumab binding prevents IL-36 agonist binding to the IL-36 receptor, dimerization of the receptor and the accessory protein, and downstream activation of the IL-36 pathway, allowing skin and pustular healing. Let's now talk about the phase two trial of spisolumab for flares of generalized pustular psoriasis. I was the principal investigator in that trial, but there were 53 patients in the trial and they were randomized. To, um, and remember, we're dealing with a life-threatening disease. So the way the trial was designed, which I, I really loved, is nobody was at risk for more than a week of getting placebo. Uh, and that was the way we could make it a double-blind placebo-controlled trial. The other thing that you know we've spoken about is the drug works so quickly that within a week, you know if the patient's better. So the way the trial was designed is that two-thirds of the patients, 35 of the 53, received spisolumab 900 milligrams intravenously. Uh, and then the uh, a third of the patients got placebo intravenously. And the endpoint, the primary endpoint was at one week. Uh, we did not want to keep patients on placebo longer than one week. And uh, if the patients uh, responded, they continued to be followed through week 12. If the patients did not respond, they then got a second 900 milligram IV infusion of spisolumab, and we were then able to treat the placebo patients as well. Um, we uh, then followed them through week 12, and uh, you'll see the results in one moment. So the assessments that were used were a generalized pustular psoriasis global assessment score, and uh, there was a uh, template that was given to the investigators to help them measure erythema, pustules, degree of pustulation, and scaling. Uh, note here that there is no score for induration because this is not psoriasis, which is why a PASI score is not uh, ideal here. The, uh, the other score besides a, a generalized pustular psoriasis global assessment score was a generalized pustular psoriasis PASI score, the equivalent of a, of a PASI score. So that's the GP PASI, and, um, and that was scored as well. Uh, and these are similar to other scores where the rankings of severity of disease ranged from zero, which is clear, through four, which was, was uh, severe. One was almost clear, two was mild, three was moderate, four severe. In terms of baseline demographics, the proportion of patients who had moderate disease was 80% in both groups, around 80%, and 20% who had severe disease. Um, this is a different demographic than the patients who come in acutely ill and are put in the intensive care unit. Uh, this was an outpatient study, so we did not include patients who are in the hospital or in intensive care. This was all outpatients. Um, so uh, a, a somewhat milder group of uh, patients. And then in terms of the um, scores, uh, the uh, GP PASI score was a little bit worse than the spisolumab treated patients with 27.4% of subject, I, uh, with a median PASI score of 27.4 compared to placebo, which was 20.9. So a little bit worse than the spisolumab group, 
uh, making it harder to achieve clear, clear or almost clear skin in that group. In terms of uh, efficacy at the endpoint, looking at a GPPGA score of zero, so completely clear skin, it was 54.3% at one week in the spasolumab-treated patients versus only 5.6% in the placebo-treated patients. So even though it's a small study, a dramatic benefit with high statistical significance, a p-value less than 0.001. The key secondary endpoint, uh, GPPGA total score, uh, and that first score was a GPPGA postulation score, a GPPGA total score less than or equal to one, so clear or almost clear skin on the PGA was 42.9% in the spasolumab-treated patients versus 11.1% in the uh, placebo-treated patients. Now, Mark, it's really remarkable that more than half the patients had not one pustule in a week, not one pustule. I mean, and, uh, and then a lot of those people had almost no pustules, but not one in more than half the patients is really remarkable. I was very, very impressed with the, this data, these data. Results actually have been broken down in various ways. But as you just pointed out, anyone who got the drug was dramatically better. They might not have all achieved a postulation score of zero, but anyone who got the drug was dramatically better. It was really a phenomenal uh, outcome to the study. And here's some dramatic photos showing response to spasolumab. And I'll point out here that whether the patients had the mutation in the IL-36 uh, receptor uh, or the loss of the IL-36 receptor antagonist, the mutation for the receptor antagonist, didn't matter. The patients did well regardless. Uh, so what you see here is uh, at the top, a patient who is IL-36 receptor uh, uh, mutation negative and uh, IL-36 receptor positive in the bottom both of them went from a baseline of four severe disease to zero with the treatment. Um, in fact, as quickly as three days. So Mark, that's good news because you can't really get the test uh, anyway to see if they have the, re the mutation or not. So if they have GPP, they should respond whether they have the mutation or not. But if they already have plaque psoriasis, they probably don't have the mutation. Uh, that's correct. And the response occurred, by the way, whether they had plaque psoriasis or not, the response. Um, and what you see here, you know, not surprising, you take a person who's covered with red skin covered in pus and you make them normal. Of course, there's going to be a dramatic reduction in pain and improvement in quality of life. And uh, that is shown beautifully here. The reduction in DLQI scores are the improvement is more than 10 which is extraordinary, uh, you know, just a dramatic improvement in their lives. And pain is probably their biggest complaint at the moment right. that they have the flare. They're miserable. They're miserable. They are miserable. I, I would say, you know, the misery is also contributed to by the swollen legs, the oozing of their skin, the shaking chills. You know, there's a lot going on, but pain is certainly dominant. In terms of adverse events in the trial, the uh, in terms of any adverse events, they were pretty similar between the two groups. 66% of the spasolumab-treated patients and 56% of the placebo patients 
had any adverse events, which counts all adverse events that were reported. Um, serious adverse events were identical. 6% of patients in both groups had those. In terms of uh, investigator-defined drug-related adverse events, it was 29% in the spasolumab group and 28% in the placebo group, so not much of a difference there. Um, there were no deaths, fortunately. In terms of serious adverse events, 6% of, and those are often defined by hospitalization, 6% uh, of the spasolumab patients and zero of the placebo patients developed serious adverse events. Fever, interestingly, was significantly higher in the placebo-treated patients because as we, as we have discussed already, uh, you lose the protective functions of the skin so that untreated GPP patients will uh, often experience fever. The, the spasolumab reduced that by two, more than two-thirds. Um, dizziness was interestingly only reported in the placebo-treated patients, 11% of those, and that's because they're sick. So not surprising that they would be dizzy. Um, there was a question of the DRESS syndrome, uh, which uh, has not been corroborated. It was questionable whether it was a real DRESS syndrome, but there was one of those in the uh, uh, spasolumab-treated patients. There was one urinary tract infection and one uh, uh, drug-induced hepatic injury that was identified in the spasolumab-treated patients. But in terms of literally every other uh, adverse event during that first week, there were none. Mark, didn't that person with DRESS also have um, an antibiotic and was later challenged with the antibiotic and without the spasolumab and got DRESS from the antibiotic? So it was thought that they actually had the DRESS from the is it spectomycin? It was some antibiotic they were on. It was indeed treated with an antibiotic. And it was questionable, first of all, as to whether it was a real dress syndrome, but secondly, as to what, as to what the cause was. In terms of uh, different treatment subgroups, uh, the spasolumab was highly effective across every group you can imagine. It didn't matter what gender you were. It didn't matter how much you weighed. It didn't matter what your race was. It didn't matter if you had the mutation or didn't. It didn't matter uh, what the baseline severity was. Uh, there, there was literally no factor. Baseline medications did not matter. All the, the patients got better when they got spasolumab compared to placebo. It was a huge improvement. I was happy about the weight because um, everyone got the same dose. It wasn't dosed milligram per kilogram, and it didn't seem to matter, which is very, very important. Uh, and again, every subgroup analyzed, the patient did better regardless of the tool used to measure the efficacy of the drug, wh whether it was the PGA score or the GP-PASI, every subgroup improved. Let me now describe the phase two trial, which was designed to prevent flares of GPP. Um, so patients who had had a history of GPP were put in the trial. Uh, some of the patients in our original trial were uh, extended onto this trial, and the patients were treated with a 600 milligram loading dose followed by 300 milligrams subcutaneously every four weeks or 600 milligram loading dose in a second arm with 300 milligrams subcutaneously every 12 weeks or a lower dose, which is 300 milligrams loading with 150 milligrams subcutaneously every 12 weeks or placebo. So there were four arms ranging from placebo to high dose. Uh, and if they flared, they were given a 900 milligram IV bolus. 
and then put back on um, a loading dose either every, either every 12 weeks or every four weeks. This is a very dramatic case. And Mark, you mentioned this already. I mean, she I met her in the emergency room. She was life flighted to UAB on a Saturday night. So it was 2 a.m. when she came on Sunday. Um, she looks horrible. She's red and swollen. That's the first thing you see. She's covered with pustules. We'll look closely at the pustule, the pustular lakes. She's 60-ish. She had plaque psoriasis for most of her life. She was on a variety of different biologics, most recently guselcomab, which kept her stable for a couple years. And she presented uh, 20D and then got sent to uh, UABED with this rash. Uh, what we felt triggered it was she got an injection of IM steroid a few, couple days before this started. Um, and she was also given an oral dose pack of something. So she was life-flighted. She was tachycardic. She had a high temperature. She had leukocytosis. And when you see this as a non-dermatologist, you assume incorrectly, because you see all these pustules, they're septic. They have a temperature. They have a leukocytosis. They have pustules. You think, wow, this is a bad infection. And the normal response then, well, let's put them on vancomycin. But we, we did go see the patient immediately. You could see the significant edema. She's probably in high output heart failure. And we did end up doing a biopsy, which confirmed the diagnosis, but she was treated before we got the results of the biopsy. We gave her, when when we saw her, uh, one infusion, one infusion of spazolamab, and along with the topical tramcinolone. Here she is, uh, about a day, a little less, after her one infusion. You can see it work fast. She was totally clear, and you can see the swelling is gone. And 48 hours later, she had absolutely nothing. And I still see her. She's doing fine. Uh, I put her back on the Gusell Kamat that she was started on, and uh, she's still clear. So this is an interesting journey from almost dying to clearing up. Pretty miraculous. Lucky it happened now and not a year ago, and we didn't have the drug. Yeah, she was extremely lucky, and uh, she's very, very happy. And you can see how swollen she was because she's not so swollen now. So there are barriers to us. I get this drug. First, you have to make the correct diagnosis. I actually, when I was in the ICU, I had a PowerPoint on my iPad, and I'm showing the um, the intensivists um, and the residents uh, a, a little story on GPP, and uh, I'm showing how we diagnose this and why I think she had it because they wonder why do you want her on a different drug because we're doing vancomycin. Let's wait for the culture to come back. The other hurdle is getting it approved by the insurance. That can be very, very difficult. And finally, getting the drug available in your hospital or uh, wherever you're seeing the patient. I think it will be coming out sub-Q at one point, uh, but um, that's to be determined. Right now, we have it IV, and it's an infusion. So this is a, a competing drug, imsodolumab, which has finally released data of their phase two trial. And, you know, as expected, um, the, there, this target is a very uh, reliably effective target. If you hit the IL-36 receptor, you're going to make this better. So this trial was designed a little bit differently. Eight patients were, low, were enrolled. Six patients completed the study. There is at baseline a uh, 750 milligram IV treatment followed by subcutaneous 100 milligram uh, dosing uh, which was given uh, at uh, week four, eight, 
12, and then the primary endpoint assessments occurred at both week four and at week 16. Okay, the baseline demographics uh, are only a little bit different here. Uh, here's one of the patients, actually, one out of the eight patients, 12%, had mild disease, 62% moderate, 25% severe. The metrics they used also range from zero to four, uh, and uh, there was an overwhelming proportion of patients that had moderate to severe disease. Uh, 12% had moderate, 50% had severe. Uh, they did use base, uh, the BSA uh, covered with pustules as one of the endpoints, which I find very useful. And uh, you see that they're fairly evenly balanced in terms of uh, demographics. Okay, um, and this is these are the results of the trial. In terms of uh, clinical global improvement, 75% of patients achieved that endpoint at both weeks four and week 16. And you see those data here where they were either um, minimally improved is in gray, very small proportion, much improved is in orange, and very improved is in blue, and overwhelmingly it was uh, m much improved or very much improved. And if you look at the uh, total percent change uh, in the uh, uh, disease uh, severity score measured here, you see it's fairly rapid uh, going from uh, day one through day 29. So rapid improvement. In terms of the percent BSA covered with pustules, erythema covered with pustules, again, you see this dramatic improvement with it. Uh, getting close to 100% improvement by day 29. In fact, the number there at day 29 is 94% reduction in the body surface area covered with erythema and pustules. And here's a beautiful uh, photograph illustrating that improvement in severity. And this patient looks really better at week four, and I presume they yeah. probably look better by week one too. Yeah, I believe that you saw the trajectory of that improvement score is fairly it was rapid. A steep curve. Yeah, steep curve. Okay, and you know, not surprising. I, I always uh, am, am when I show a, uh, a quality of life slide, slide, it's almost a no brainer. Somebody's covered in redness and pustules, they're shivering, their heart's not working well enough, and you know, you make them better right away. Of course, the quality of life is going to improve. And this is a dramatic improvement in quality of life that is fairly rapid. So in summary, their drug was well tolerated and associated with acceptable safety. 37.5% reported adverse events that were either related or possibly related to study treatment. And they included nausea, um, nosocomial infection, oropharyngeal pain, psoriasis and vomiting. 25% had serious AEs but recovered without sequelae. Um, uh, there was a severe sepsis due to nosocomial infection on day seven. That subject had received a prohibited medication infliximab on day 15 visit and discontinued from the study on day 22. Um, there were also, not surprisingly during this period, some mild SARS infections no subject discontinued the study due to a, an adverse event, and there were no infusion-related adverse events or injection site reactions. All right, so let's move on to unmet need for effective treatment for GPP. I think treatment guidelines for GPP are not well established. 
the diagnosis, as we've mentioned, is already we've already discussed is a clinical diagnosis, um, not a histologic diagnosis. It's a clinical diagnosis. You see a patient who's toxic, who's red, who's pustules, uh, often with a history of plaque psoriasis. The only drug that's currently approved in the U.S. is bezolimab, IL-36 blocker, and we may have another drug coming out, as we mentioned already. There are other biologics that are approved in other countries, particularly in Japan, based on limited data. Yeah, when you look at the data that is uh, published that led to the approval in Japan, and the most recent one I think is bradalumab, which to my mind is one of the most effective biologics we have. And when you look at the data, yes, it worked, but it took months to get to a point where, you know, a high proportion of patients are not in danger. And, and this is a life-threatening condition uh, so that I don't think that the treatments we had until now were adequately effective. So the big unmet need at this point is not just the flares, but the prevention of flares. So I've shown you that we have a trial underway the results should be reported soon uh, and hopefully will be quite promising. But the bottom line is that we need something to prevent those patients who are prone to getting generalized pustular psoriasis from developing the disease. Um, since the drug has been approved, I've actually seen a few patients who uh, uh, have uh, been treated with spisolumab and are uh, wondering, what do I do now? And right now, all we have for them is if they flare again, we'll treat them again. But once that uh, sub-Q formulation comes out for prevention of flares, uh, those patients are on a list of people I'm going to call right away and advise them that they should uh, go on the preventive treatment. And my lady that I, I showed you, the patient, she was so worried she'd get it again, she couldn't go through it again. And I can only tell her, don't have any more steroids. <clears throat> And I went over the other risk factors, and she's still terrified. I She calls me every month, and we have a report on how she's doing, and she's still hanging in there. But you never know, and the anxiety is there. If you don't want to go through that once, you don't want to go through it again. So we need to have something that we could do on a regular basis to prevent flares in those uh, susceptible to recurrent disease. We finally do have a treatment which has tremendous, you know, superb evidence that it takes those pustules and in a matter of hours gets rid of them. Over half the patients at one week had zero pustules. It is a life-saving treatment and anyone who's used it actually is aware of how quickly and well it works. So uh, uh, at this point, I think we actually have a little pressure on us to get the drug, to make it accessible to patients. And I would say that in practice, that's been the biggest problem. Bonnie, I can't tell you how happy I was that your patient was able to get it quickly. You and I were on the phone trying to figure out how to get it. And we fortunately had, had a little bit of help from the company that makes it. Um, I know that Aaron Bow in Tulane called me one day with a, a patient as sick as yours, who she said, you know, this patient's going to die. And the hospital was not willing to pay for the drug. And we finally, Aaron actually went to the president of the medical center and said, this patient's going to die if we don't treat her, and the drug is available that will make her better by tomorrow. And she got it, and it did. So I think that it really takes doctors being advocates for their patients to get it. We've got to come up with some system that allows insurance to cover this life-saving drug quickly. Um, and uh, 
you know, the uh, old guidelines that might have suggested you need a biopsy, those are worthless at this point. They are getting in the way of saving a patient's life. So you don't need a biopsy. You don't need a genetic test. You need somebody who uh, has that diagnosis clinically. You should be able to treat them right away. You know, there was another person that called me that they wanted to get the drug immediately for a patient, but the one of the guidelines said you need to check for TB. And so they wanted, they had to wait till the TB test was positive, was positive or negative if it came out. But to me, I just get a blood test for TB and then start the drug. And that's what we did for our my patient. We didn't wait till it came out back. We just did it. Yeah. When you have a life-saving condition, you pull out all stops to get it done. And you can't wait for a TB test, even though it may only take two or three days. Or you can't wait for a biopsy. You just have to go ahead and do it. For sure. So this disease does involve many organs. Uh, Patients need a good general physician. They may need a good mental health care provider. They may need a pain manager, someone who can manage their pain, Uh, a dietitian to help them keep healthy, lose weight. Your nurse practitioner or PA also needs to be educated. Uh, The primary care person needs to be educated. And we need to educate our workers in the emergency room at hospitals to know that this disease is out there and it can be treated rapidly and correctly um, rather than give somebody uh, a drug that they don't need, like vancomycin. So multidisciplinary care is is critical in the long-term management of these patients. Yeah, I will say much of this ends up being reactive. The patients come in and you find out that they are anemic and that may need management, although just getting rid of the pustulous rises often solves that. You may find that they will do better if they actually have a dietitian involved who makes sure that their serum albumin comes up right away because if they are debilitated in bed, the next thing you know, they're going to have a bed sore and that becomes a problem. So you need to supplement them so that their albumin comes up and they heal those sores quickly. You've got to make sure that they move around so they don't get the bread bed sore. And a lot of this is reactive in terms of what you find on the laboratory results when the patient comes in. If they have a heart rate of 120 and their, uh, uh, their legs are swollen because they have high output cardiac failure, I will say when you clear their pustular psoriasis, that improves proves right away. Um, so the, the onus is on getting them treated so that all the other problems go away, but you might need a cardiologist involved if that doesn't work very quickly. So um, everything here, I believe, is reactive and happens depending on how sick they are. And patient education is important too. The patients need to understand their disease. They need to know what can trigger them. You know, the steroids in my lady, she's called me and asked, well, can I use topical steroids? Yes, I I allow topical steroids. Uh, What about nasal inhalational steroids. She has done that without a flare. Um, So they just need to understand what might trigger them, what could trigger them in the future, and how to keep themselves as healthy as possible. So patients need to have access to information on their disease. I encourage them also to seek mental health care uh, to keep themselves mentally fit uh, and dealing with this disease and how it may impact their life. And their family needs to understand this also. The patient needs to also understand the comorbid conditions that may develop and complications. So I think the theme is that patients need to know their disease, know what makes it better, know what makes it worse, and their family needs to be involved also. Agreed completely. So we have spoken quite a bit on GPP, 
And Mark and I have kind of went, reviewed all the recent literature and updates and advancements in this uh, rare but serious disease. We talked about how it differs from plaque psoriasis phenotypically, immunologically, and histopathologically. We talked about how plaque psoriasis is driven by the IL-2317 pathway. GPP is driven by dysregulated IL-36 signaling. We need to recognize GPP quickly. It's a clinical diagnosis. It's critical to diagnose it quickly so you can treat it because death may occur. Um, you should suspect GPP in patients with acute onset erythema and pustulosis. And diagnosis is based clinically. Histological features may help, but it's not necessarily useful because it's not timely and not necessary before you start treatment of the patient. So, and I would uh, just add to that, the diagnosis is not that difficult. Get rid of causative factors forever. The patients who were on steroids should be told, avoid them at all costs if possible in the future, um, but treat, diagnose quickly and treat quickly. So the one thing that you can do, because this is something, it's a condition that will be seen in a medical center maybe once a year. And what you can do is make sure that the hospital is attuned to it, alert to it, so that they can have access to the drug quickly. There are different ways of doing it and dis different hospital formularies work differently. But I know that here at Mount Sinai, what we've tried to do is to make sure that it is available on formulary. And we do have an emergency access option, um, but we wanna make sure it's on formulary. If the patient is treated, because the cost of the drug is substantial, um, then we've used the drug and uh, and it will get paid for. On the other hand, if the patient um, is if there isn't a patient who's treated with it and the drug expires, you have to negotiate when you uh, purchase the drug to make sure that you're not bearing the course of a cost of a drug that is not being used. So every hospital is different, uh, but try to get this on formulary if you can, so that in an emergency you will have quick access. To this activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash NJA860. This activity is supported by an independent medical educational grant from Beringer Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals, Incorporated.